be really clear about what your goals are in this situation. So like, you know, and I, and I think we did it well, even, even, even some of the, the groups that weren't as copacetic working together that I've worked with over the years that, you know, sort of half referred to before, being clear on what the goals are and what the responsibilities are amongst people um, really helps. Hey everyone, this is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, the serial entrepreneur that's grown several startups into seven and eight figure businesses, as well as the founder and CEO of Miller IP Law, where we focus on helping startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. If you ever need help with yours, just go to strategymeeting.com and we're always here to help. Now today we have another great uh, guest on the podcast, Jenny Paul. And uh, Jenny uh, grew up in Texas, went to high school, wanted to be a doctor, um, and uh, always kind of was doing theater more kind of on the side or for fun. Uh, went into undergraduate, studied pre-med, and after a first semester or two, found out she didn't like it, so switched over. Um, started taking a few uh, theater classes as extracurricular kind of fun classes. Ended up by the end uh, to taking in theater, and I think uh, graduating with a theater degree or something of that nature. Moved to New York, started acting for five or six years. Um, started doing, uh, also started doing content creation, kind of did a web series, decided the next time that she was doing content creation uh, for a web series and whatnot, she was going to find a way to market it, monetize it, and uh, allow people to buy things through. And that's kind of led to a bit of where she's at today. So with that much as a introduction, welcome on to the podcast, Jenny. Hi. Wow. You did that quick. <laughs> <laughs> Got to give that quick, short uh, short in- introduction. But now it's now uh, we're going to rewind a bit back in time and uh, walk us through a little bit more in detail, kind of, you know, high school wanting to initially be a doctor, going to medicine, and then how your story went from there. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty much what happened. I, I sort of always knew that I wanted to do something that was uh, designed to help people, um, whether it be, you know, sort of therapy, if it were to be psychology, or if it were to be medicine, kind of, kind of proper. Um, my dad, my dad and my mom were both doctors, and my dad was the, was the king of the neighborhood. He was the internist for, you know, all half of my teachers and, you know, most of my community. And so, you know, people really appreciated and respected him for being their caretaker in some regard. And and I think that was always attractive to me because I always sort of felt the sort of felt the urge that I that that I wanted to care for other people as sort of, you know, number one, um, or at least help, you know, help them in some way if I could. Um, and so I ended up flipping over to theater because I realized I didn't love the science so much. Um, where my father and my mother both really loved the science. So of course, you know, 12 years of science looking down the barrel at that didn't seem so tragic to them. Um, but uh, one, one question on that, just because, <laughs> so, I mean, since really high school, you've been kind of thinking about, I want to be a doctor, you yeah. see, you know, the, you know, had influence with your parents and whatnot. So, you know, that, you know, the decision to switch to theater, I, I'm guessing wasn't just a one day woke up and want to be theater. So how did you kind of decide or what was the triggering point just saying, hey, I've been in a semester or two, this really just isn't as exciting or interesting as I thought it would be. What do I want to do? Or are you already doing theater on the side and said, that's really where my passion is or kind of how did you make that initial transition? I mean, I, I grew up singing in choirs and solos and things like that. And, um, and being really invested in that. And then when I got to high school, I switched from uh, choir to theater and was doing theater for, you know, most of my childhood or, you know, some sort of performing. And so it was always a thing that I loved, but I also grew up, you know, Dallas 
Um, Texas isn't necessarily a place where people necessarily decide to go be performers. It's not like I grew up in the New York Metroplex or in LA or whatever. So it wasn't so much, didn't, it didn't seem to me so much of, as a choice. And then when I went to college and I was taking theater on the side while I was doing my pre-med courses, the people that went to the school that I went to took it really seriously. And I went, oh, this is a, this is actually a choice. Like you can, you can do this. Uh, so that's sort of how, um, how I fell into it is, you know, I got really very stressed out by the science and doing super well, but realizing I just wasn't loving it. And then, um, and then taking the theater classes and then dropping out of the science classes and then only having the theater classes. And so until I, I figured I would do that until I figured out what I really wanted to do. And then I sort of realized that is what I really wanted to do. Um, so that is sort of how all that happened. And then, um, and then, you know, moved to New York to be an actor and have been doing that for oh, 13, 14 years. And also um, in the meantime, learning how and becoming really good at content producing as well on top of that. And so that's, so that's how that all happened. So now, and this now backing up just cause that was a good or a good p- or a space of time. So you, you decide, okay, first thing is you decided, you know, maybe pre-med and medicine wasn't or what you'd envisioned or what you wanted to do. or wasn't what you're passionate to do. So you said, okay, I'll move over to theater, get the degree, you graduate and you go to New York. Now, you know, I've imagined, and maybe you can correct me where I'm wrong, in New York, there's a lot of people wanting to get into theater and acting and everything else. So how did you, once you, what was your initial experience when you got to New York and you're trying to figure out how to actually get into theater and acting and do, and, you know, chase your dreams? How did that experience go? I mean, I think I came, you know, when I came to New York, there were a lot of people my same age trying to do the same thing, whether it was musical theater or straight theater or some TV film, which wasn't as uh, prominent when I moved to New York, or it, it was, but it wasn't something that a 21-year-old could necessarily expect to get into right away without a lot of experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, my experience was, you know, coming to New York with, a, you know, kind of a full community of people that were excited to do plays and figure out how to do little things in the park. And, you know, and so basically I sort of uh, sought out anything that seemed interesting to me. I, I wasn't in the unions yet, so anything was sort of possible and did a lot of little, you know, little developmental plays and met playwrights and, um, you know, screenwriters and designers and directors and producers and anybody that I sort of clicked with found a way to do projects with. And, and so I think that that's sort of the, the initial experience of coming to New York. And I imagine it's still the same for people right out of school where they find those little groups of people where they're making craft together that have, you know, similar voices in the art. Um, and then, you know, what I found is as time goes on, people kind of left the business or a couple people, you know, people that are really, uh, you know, some people made it, some people didn't make it, some people decided to do other things, some people uh, decided that the, the business is just not for them. So, you know, now I'm now the, the community of people is much smaller, but it's also, you know, um, it's still, you know, the same people, the, the people for, that I met at the beginning that I had really good relationships with and artistic work with are some of the same people I'm still working with now. Mm, no, definitely makes sense. So, so you do that and you did it was for five or six years. Um, I mean, I guess, yeah. I mean, over the, over the, the course, I would say I was those first few years, I was kind of kicking around maybe three or four years before I got an agent and started mm. really getting, you know, kind of elevated work. I also had a full-time job. <clears throat> excuse me that wasn't this so um 
So finding time to, you know, make money and do these other things um, was uniquely a fun, I think, but also, you know, annoying and difficult in a lot of ways. Because so just out of curiosity, what did you do for the, the full-time job as you're also trying to balance all of your, your, your acting, your theater career? I was working as a manager for the 2010 census. So, mm -hmm. and I did it for quite a long time. So I was in charge of, if, if you know New York City well enough, um, Roosevelt Island and the Upper East Side um, for quite a while. And, you know, pieces of that. And I got moved to, you know, bigger, bigger jobs and smaller jobs because the way the census works is it works in, uh, in projects. So we had this, you know, the first project and then they, when they moved to the second, when they move you somewhere else. And, you know, um, so I was doing that for quite, quite a long time. Um, and then when the 20, 2010 census ended, probably in, I don't know, August or September of, of 2010, I'd been working for it since 2008. Um, then, you know, we all got laid off at the same time, but I was working for them for, for quite a while and managing anywhere from 20 to 80 people at any one time. So, um, you know, kind of getting my bearings and, you know, being an adult in some ways, being, you know, being in charge of people that were far more experienced and older than me, um, because it's a, you know, very civic community oriented type of job. So there are people from my age all the way up to, you know, retired and post-retired, mm. um, um, just, you know, coming to work because they thought it was an interesting thing to do and why not? No, it definitely makes sense. So now you do that, you know, you work on the, the census and I always look at it really as side job is just another full-time job. So you usually end up working as many or more hours on the side job, but you're doing the theater, you're trying to get that up and going as well as, you know, supporting yourself and doing the, the census and that. Now, how did you transition over to doing kind of your content creation and doing that? Was that kind of just an, an add on or an additional effort as far as you're doing the theater and acting and trying to get that up and going, or is that different opportunity or kind of how did that start to lead you to where you're at today? Well, I think um, maybe, so we're talking about maybe like 2012-ish possibly. Mm -hmm. I think at that time, um, web series were starting to be like an inkling of a thing. So before then people did not create their own content, at least they did in theater and we did plenty of that, but not in, in TV and film because the networks were, you know, God in that way and, and you were auditioning for them or you weren't and that kind of was it. So I think 2000, I want to say 2011, 12 is when, when the concept of creating your own work started to sort of seep through the seams. And what was happening is there were a lot of people that were around my age that were actors who hadn't booked a big network show, myself included, um, who wanted to be seen to do film um, because that's sort of where our heads were, were at. I was always sort of, my head was always, I always wanted to do like sitcoms. I was always, that was sort of my pie in the sky goal. Um, but, you know, they, there weren't a lot of opportunities to do camera work um, in New York, especially. But if you weren't, if you didn't have an agent, you weren't even getting auditions for these roles, much less um, getting, you know, getting seen for them. And so, um, so, I sort of took advantage of that pretty quickly and said, well, if, if people are making their own content now and that's the new big thing, let's go. <laughs> let's make some content so that we have real to show people to get an agent, to, to get, you know, to get booked on television shows and things. And I teamed up with two other actors and one writer to create a show called That Reminds Me um, that, you know, featured all of us in ways that we couldn't have, you know, sort of even imagined before this became a thing. Hmm, so that's... Yeah, that was sort of the beginning of the content creation, you know, 
hmm. chapter for me. No, I think one of the things you kind of learned, if I remember when we chatted a bit before, was say, uh, you know, you got into content creation, kind of started to explore that as a avenue to get your name out there, get your content out there, you know, to if you're not necessarily a mainstream or a major actor there, but he knows there's a way to kind of showcase a little bit of your talents and that. Now you did the content creation. And I think one of the things you mentioned was, you know, you didn't necessarily think about how you're going to monetize that initially or how you're actually going to, you know, have a return on that. So how did that kind of transition after you initially got into content creation to where, Hey, I'm actually going to try and make a business out of this or make an income or actually, you know, start to, to make or, you know, have something more than just it is a being a hobby. I mean, I think, I think at that point that the goal wasn't monetization, the goal was representation. So getting an agent, getting a manager, getting people to see, you know, I'd been doing plays in New York, New York for years, but none of the people that I grew up with that would have been, you know, happy to come see me in shows lived in New York. I grew up in Texas. So, you know, I didn't, I wasn't able to, you know, sort of show off my performance sort of talents to anybody other than the people in the immediate New York, New York sphere, unless somebody wanted to come up and see a show. So that original goal was not money. The original goal was, you know, exposure. And then when I continued to make content for myself, for other people, help other people make their content as, as the sort of genre grew and people started realizing that it was a good way to get their representation and to get, so I, I did get my agent from that show. Mm. So, um, so when people started figuring out that, that it was working, you know, people started moving into creating their own content. And then it sort of became this thing where you could absolutely create your own content. Maybe you did a Kickstarter to get the funding for it that first time, whatever you did, but there wasn't really a way to keep it rolling if the product itself deserved to have a life rather than the people in the product. So you make you know one season of a short sitcom and people are like, oh, this is really good. We're a season two. And yeah. you go, well, we can't afford that. We didn't think of that. Mm. Um, so it's that concept of uh, realizing that, that these projects, a lot of them, not all of them, you know, not everything's amazing, but a lot of them deserve to have a life that was independent of their creator um, and to live the way that network TV lives or the way that, you know, uh, cable TV or now streaming lives. And so that was something that sort of was always on my mind as I was doing more and more of this was none of these, you know, I'd go to web series festivals and the best web series, you know, whatever one best web series didn't have any money to make another season mm. and didn't have any way of making that money. And so that was sort of, that's been on my mind for all of the years that I've been doing this is there's got to be a way for people to monetize these things outside of asking their friends for the money. And so that, <laughs> that's, that's sort of, you know, the, the genesis of, of what ended up becoming adulting with Jane is let's, let me figure out how to monetize this so that it actually is beneficial to whomever is, you know, giving lending involved with the money, but also, you know, so that these projects could have a real life. Mm, no, it definitely makes sense. So, so now that kind of brings you up to where you're doing today. So you now got adulting with Jane. And so how did you kind of start to take and incorporate kind of the things you learned, the experience you've got on the other ones and kind of all of that to now fold that into something that you could monetize or otherwise be able to at least support so that you can make the next series, you can continue on, you know, and continue to do that without having to go to the friends and the family to kind of support it. How did you kind of start to adjust that model or, or adjust to where you're at today? 
Um, so I think, you know, over time, if you're creating enough content, you sort of develop a, uh, you know, a drawer full of ideas and things, and you're hoping that one day this one or that one will have a reason to get, you know, funded, or you're just, you know, co collecting ideas. And, and one of the ones that I really was in love with was this concept of, you know, we always go to YouTube for how-to videos. Mm -hmm. um, but they're not particularly entertaining. There's nothing real special about a how-to video. It's just sort of a necessity. Um, and Google is uniquely suited to do that because they're Google. So, you know, if you're saying like how to change a tire and then YouTube, which is, you know, easily the most popular place for indie content to live, um, at least in terms of like longer form, more structured, not necessarily like TikTok videos, this sort of thing. So, um, you go and you watch some really dry dude, like show you how to unscrew the, you know, nuts and then jack the car up and the dude, and you're like, okay, you know, and it, it, you do the thing cause you have to do the thing. But I always thought, you know, like, why not, why not kind of, why not feel empowered in the adulting rather than the word adult, you know, the, the, the original incarnation. So the, the original word adulting was uh, coined by an author I think her name was Kelly Brown. Um, and she wrote a book. She wrote a book about, you know, 300 things you need to know to be an adult. And so she coined that term. Um, mm -hmm. And so immediately when adult, the word adulting started becoming a thing, it was like, adulting, do not recommend, you know, adulting sucks. Adulting, one star, adulting, I need coffee, whatever, whatever those things are. And I was like, well, for me, a lot of this stuff could and should have been interesting and fun because I'm one of those people that's just very learning forward and curious. Like I, I like learning how to do things because it makes me feel like I, you know, did something right. Um, so, you know, that I'm kind of like an adult girl scout in, in a way it's that, that the stuff that people kind of think sucks. I also think sucks sometimes. Don't, let's not play. But if I were to learn it in a way that was interesting to me and that didn't feel like you know, death and taxes and destruction, I would probably enjoy myself versus like how to change a tire where it's like, I'm actually stuck in the middle of a highway and I really do want to kill myself. And I'm waiting, waiting through 15 minutes of YouTube because I'm literally on the side of the road. And I think that was sort of the, the impetus for this, even before sort of the monetary piece of it was I wanna do a show that teaches people how to do these things so that they already know kind of how to do them. So that by the time they are on the side of the road, if that happens to them, they don't feel so utterly scared and hopeless. They go, oh, you know what? I kind of know how to do this. Let me look it up or whatever they're gonna do to finish it, but not have a panic attack about it because it's not the worst thing in the world. It's not, you know, the, you know we're gonna die on the side of the road kind of thing. I know a little bit about this. I'm a little bit empowered here. Let me do that. Let me, let me figure this out. I'll figure this out. Mm. Um, and I think that was sort of the impetus. So, so taking my two loves of, you know, sort of helping people and sitcoms, I was like, okay, let's make a sitcom that, you know, helps people in it, maybe puts them in a position by the time they do have, you know, a major issue that they're not feeling so overwhelmed by it. Mm. And I think, I think I, kind of found a uniquely good time to do it when, you know, this is around the time that Marie Kondo came out and people were starting to get excited and, you know, and uh, 
and ready to do things like clean their houses where like that would have been miserable before. But now like a lot of people, especially women, but a lot of people are like, Ooh, I'm going to do this for my house too. This is very cool. So kind of entering this sort of lifestyle DIY at the right time. And I was like between that. And then the other factor was the money factor. I didn't, you know, back to what we started talking about is, is this something that would fit the model that the networks use, which is advertising? And the answer I, you know, really quickly was yes, but it's too small for people to care. So how do we make it big enough for people to actually care, A, and then B, how do we make it interesting in a way that actually actually benefits the small businesses um, to kind of weave it in so that it's kind of working for everybody. So that's sort of how we did it. It's a sitcom and how-to video. And then we are working, we're working with a shoppable video technology. So basically this is one of the first ever to do this and everything's working now, but it's like just barely off the ground, but you can actually click around within the video. You can literally click it and it pauses the video. And then if there's a product, you know, you like my earrings, cool. I can click on the earrings and go shop them, look at them, put them in my cart, whatever I'm going to do, come back to the video. Or in our case, we're using the things that are like the tools. So like the tire jack and the sewing kit and things that might actually complete the experience of the learn. So, okay, I just learned how to change a tire, click here. There's the kit for the tire jack that I can chuck in my truck forever. Hopefully never have to use it one time for any reason, but it's there. Um, And so that's sort of how we kind of came to it is we wanted to make it beneficial for the audience and fun for the audience, but also beneficial for any potential small businesses that were joining us to work with us on this um, so that they're actually getting some, you know, value and benefit out of it as well. Um, And enticing them to help us make the show so that we can help them advertise their products. No, definitely. That sounds, you know, it sounds like a interesting model to start to, to monetize that, to be able to, you know, both, you know, people see something in the show that they think is looks cool or is nice and that, that they can actually check it out and start to shop for it. Sounds like a, a, an interesting way to, to start to solve that. Hey, how do we sustain doing these series and, and then, you know, make a, a job out of this or, you know, an income out of this as opposed to just doing it as a hobby. So it sounds like a, a fun path to go down. So well, now as we start to get towards the end of the podcast, I always have two questions I always ask, so we'll jump to those now. First question I always ask is, along your journey, what was the worst business decision you ever made and what did you learn from it? Um, so I will be judicious about saying what I'm going to say, but I will say that I think it's really important to make sure that you know who you're getting in bed with when you're working as a, with business partners and and with people. So in my world, there's a lot of people and, and, you know, you can't necessarily know everybody fully before you go in. But um, one of the things that I did reasonably early on is I sort of got really excited really fast and was like, sure, I will, you know, I will go into business with, you know, I will do this thing with these people that I don't know as well. Um, And I think, I think if I had gone back, I would have said like, let me let me figure out what I really want here, get to know the people that I'm working with, make sure we have a good working relationship that we are, you know, a good fit to work together and all of that before I, you know, before I kind of jump whole hog in. So that's, that's the thing I would say is that 
you know, I, I wouldn't let my excitement get the better of my judgment in kind of jumping into things is sort of how I would phrase it. Um, because everything worked out okay. And, you know, not too much love lost, but also a lot of extra stress. And like, if we had known from the beginning, you know, like if we had really thought about whether or not this was a really good idea or, or whether or not we were a good, you know, good fit to work, then, then maybe it wouldn't, you know, we would have been able to sort of like navigate it with much less stress involved. Mm, no, def- definitely makes sense. And, you know, it's one of those, it's interesting how dynamics shift or things shift as you move from what would be friends or having worked together to now you're actually worker, you know, co-founders or working on a project together and just, you know, how that is all be- adds an extra layer of complexity to where you may have a very good relationship with them outside of work or when you're co-workers or when you work together. But now when you're actually, you know, doing a project, who invests in what time and what money and everything else. It always adds that extra layer of complexity that always is one where you have to look as to how to make that beneficial or whether or not it makes sense. So definitely understand. As we jump now to the second question, which is if you did talking to someone who's just getting into a startup or a small business, what'd be the one piece of advice you'd give them? Um, I think, I think that, you know, if, if one piece of advice would be to, be really clear about what your goals are in the situation. So like, you know, and I, and I think we did it well, even, even, even some of the, the groups that weren't as copacetic working together that I've worked with over the years that, you know, sort of half referred to before being clear on what the goals are and what the responsibilities are amongst people um, really helps. So, you know, that first series that we were all super, really excited to do this and then, you know, we're rolling and we're rolling. And then, um, and we all realized that the whole point that of this thing was exposure. Um, but we were all getting very disappointed that, you know, we weren't finding more audience or we weren't finding a way to find money. And we were able to, t- to take a step back at some point in the middle of all that and say, wait, whoa, 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 that wasn't the goal. The goal was to have exposure for the art. So if you can look at that and say, okay, actually we succeeded in quite a lot of the ways that we wanted to succeed. And I think that's, I think that was really important. And and I wish we had clarified it for ourselves sooner because we were getting real wrapped up in what was working, what wasn't working, where we actually did do the thing that we intended to do and we did it quite well. Um, So, you know, I think that's the big thing is, is come in with the understanding and make sure that everybody at least is somewhat on the same page of what the goal is so that you know when you hit it that you haven't done all of it for naught and when you're in the midst of all of this whether you're a startup and you're growing and you're going through all the growing pains and all the things you can look back and say hey actually we did really really well here like this was really really excellent and having those positive benchmarks and so that you can have you know mini celebrations as you're you know trucking and pushing and huffing and puffing and doing all the things you need to do you can look back and say like no, no, we're, we're doing well. And, and kind of keeping a little bit of that optimism because when you're knee deep, neck deep in a startup, whether it's going to last forever, or whether it's just to do a show, everything feels overwhelming. <laughs> no, and I definitely agree with that, you know, and it's, it's, it's always very easy when you 
get into it that you always have the next thing that needs to be done, the next fire that needs to put out, the next thing you need to do to grow or to income or anything else, which is all true. And the, you should focus on that, but to remembering the milestones, but also to savor those a bit and actually take the time to reflect back and look at it, I think is one that's important because otherwise you'll start to forget, you know, why you got into this and why it's fun and why you actually wanted to do it. So to, you know, reflect back and uh, savor those or t- or times are definitely, I think, a good point as well. Well, as a, as a reminder to the uh, listeners or to the audience, we are doing the bonus question where we'll talk a little bit about intellectual property. So for those of you who want to stay tuned for the bonus question, definitely invite you to do so. Otherwise, as we wrap up, thank you again, Jenny, for coming on. It's been fun and a pleasure to hear your journey. And for all of you that are now listeners, if you have your own journey to tell, we'd love to have you on. Just go to inventiveguest.com and apply to be on the podcast. A couple more things as listeners. One, make sure to uh, click subscribe in your podcast player so you know when all of our awesome episodes come out. And two, make sure to leave us a review so new people can find out about us as well. Last but not least, if you ever need help with patents, trademarks, or anything else with your business, just go to strategymeeting.com, grab some time with us to chat. So with that, now as we transition, we uh, always enjoy the bonus question where we get to talk about my one of my favorite topics, which is intellectual property and patents and trademarks and whatnot. It's also fun to always kind of flip the tables and have somebody else ask me the questions instead of me asking the questions. So with that, I'll turn it over to you, Jenny, to, to ask your top intellectual property question. So um, I guess, you know, over my time with film and TV stuff, I guess maybe my my biggest question is twofold. At what point is it appropriate or is it needed to copyright a script of some sort or a a concept? And more specific to me, do you have to both copyright the script and the final product? And what are the benefits and, you know, disadvantages of doing that in terms of what's actually, you know, you know, we've had, I've been through a lot of things in my time where somebody kind of stole an idea, but it was like, different enough that they could do whatever they want you know so what are what are the best things to do you know best practices and and uh, expectations yeah i mean that's certainly a bit of a complex so i'll give you kind of the general answer and there's always you know any attorney's gonna say well it depends and give you all the caveats but i'll try and give you a bit of a substantive answer i mean with copyrights which are a bit different than patents and trademarks copyrights are a bit more unique in the sense that you do have inherent rights to your creative work as soon as you what they call put it in a tangible medium so if you write it down or if you put or take the picture you do the sculpture you film the movie whatever it is upon doing that in a tangible medium meaning you get it out of your head and you actually write it down so to speak you have inherent rights to the copyright now a lot of times a reason why you're going to register the copyright is a couple fold. One is that you're wanting to establish the date so that it's not in question, hey, at least by this date, I created it. So nobody can come and say, well, I did it first. And then you're in a battle of, well, no, I created it first. No, I created it first because yes, you know, you may have created it first, but now you have to prove that. If you register the copyright, at least by that date, you can say I registered it. The other reason a lot of times you'll get it registered is let's say you let's say you have really good proof. So you're not as worried, okay, I can really very easily say, oh, hey, I made this by this date. A lot of times when you go to enforce a copyright is the other time you'll register the copyright. And that, that's usually to do with damages, which is, hey, if I'm going to, somebody ripped off my pro- work product, somebody ripped off my script or my movie or whatever it was, and they're causing me to lose a lot of money or they've otherwise made a lot of money off of it that I should be getting uh, as compensation, then in order to go enforce that in court, you have to register the copyright in order to get a lot of those damages. And so you have a lot greater ability to go after damages 
damages and get a um, recoup money if you have a register. So usually one of the reasons is register it early so that you can establish that date. The other one is if you're going to go in and enforce it, you got to make sure to register. So those are kind of the two triggering points. They're beyond that. It's kind of when I, a lot of times I look at it, the other question you hit on was kind of, let's say I have an initial script and then I keep working on it and I have a final script or I wrote the rough draft of the book and then I'm re or polishing the book and I add an extra foreword or a preface or a, something of that nature, an index or anything of that. Well, then the what you register in your copyright is what's protected in the copyright. So a lot of times you'll either do one of two things. If you're not as worried, you may just wait until you get the final work so you don't have to spend the copyright to do both of them. Or if you're saying, hey, I'm going to go and take the script, I'm going to shop it all around, I want to, you know, a lot of people are going to see it, and I want to make sure it's protected. You may do that initial rough draft so that you have that on file. Once you finish it and finalize it, you file a separate copyright just to or capture that, that final work. So that's a lot of times a couple of the different approaches you take. Does that answer your question? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> There's always plenty more to learn and always plenty more, but that at least is my initial crack at uh, answering your top intellectual property question. With that, we'll go ahead and wrap up the, the podcast. Appreciate you again, Jenny, for coming on. Now, for if, if you or any of the listeners have any other questions, always feel free to go to strategymeeting.com, grab some additional time with, the, uh, with me to chat, and definitely can go through your questions in more in depth. But with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up the podcast and uh, wish the next leg of your journey even better than the last. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.